0: I will simply begin. Uh, uh, It may surprise you, but I don't want to give a systematic overview of what I've said. I will just, to make it more dynamic, already include some constructive, non-aggressive replies to what you said. First, my title, my, my topic was Material Existence of Ideology. I think this topic is more than ever crucial today, when it's fashionable to say that on the one hand we have new fanaticism, fundamentalism, on the other hand we have total post-ideological cynicism and so on. I claim that in some sense we believe more than ever today, but our beliefs are not to be sought in explicit uh, ideological premises, systematical worldview, and so on, but in our very material material practices. That's why I would like to mention the fact that I think two days ago, not a friend of ours, but a well-known person, Rumsfeld, you know, the uh, defense secretary died. And I think in a just world, She shouldn't be remembered for all the catastrophes he caused. His catastrophic misjudgment of the situation in Iraq, the result was to make Iran strengthen, to make women's uh, position much worse in Iraq and so on. But you know, his well-known distinction between known, knowns, and, and so on and so on, I think that when I then... Try to supplement his list of the three with the fourth category. The unknown knowns. Things we know, but we are not even aware that we know them because they are our ideological racist and so on prejudices of which we are not even aware, but we practice them. That this opposition, unknown unknowns, things we don't even know that we don't know them and unknown knowns, are even more than for the Iraqi war actual today, the pandemic, the global warming. On the one hand, we discovered, and here I agree with my otherwise half-enemy, Jürgen Habermas, who says that, apropos pandemic, it's almost more important what scientists learned about the virus. It's almost more important how much we learned that we don't know. And this is very important. On the other hand, unknown knowns. I think that to understand, especially Western reaction to the virus, it's very important to bear in mind all the ideological prejudices and so on. You cannot understand our collective response in different countries, within countries to virus without all this ideological political I don't like the word prejudice because prejudice has this bad taste, as if you are stupid one sided. But prejudice is something embedded in our daily practice. And from here on I would like to uh, refer briefly to the work you at the end are doing uh, also together with, I think, our shared friend, Rebecca Carson, something very interesting. More and more, if we read Marx, we learn to what extent, in the last years of his life, he was preoccupied by the role of fiction, of necessary fictions for the normal reproduction of capitalism itself. You have in Marx... uh, always a reluctance, he never, as far as I know, he never calls commodity fetishism an ideology. Why? Because he still clings to this standard notion, ideology is something like up in the air at distance from real life. But commodity fetishism is ideology as part of the very basic economic uh, uh, reproduction of capitalism. You take... Fictions outside, actually, capitalism and capitalism itself disintegrates. Here, just if I may briefly add, I don't want to miss time, another critical point, would you agree or not? I wonder of Marx, why I'm returning to Hegel. I think if we don't learn anything from history, but if we maybe learn anything from the 20th century, is that this basic Marxist hypothesis, how should I call it, that the working class proletariat organized in the party is a unique historical moment where we have a social agent which does something and from its theory also knows exactly what this agent is doing. So that we get in the proletarian revolution the first self- transparent intervention into history. I'm here a Hegelian. I think Hegel is even more materialist than Marx. Hegel was always aware of the fact that uh, when this pessimist Hegel, when we try to grasp our historical moment, you know, when Hegel says the all of Minerva takes off in the evening, that is to say, and this holds also for Hegel, one has to repeat it always, that that, uh, We can grasp a system, social system, only when it's already decaying in reality. So, as Robert Pippin, with whom I always in politics, pointed out, what Hegel is presenting in his philosophy of right is not his ideal how society should be. No, it's a form of life which Hegel knew it very well is already disappearing. So I think we should adopt And again, the entire 20th century demonstrates this, a more, not so much pessimistic as open view of history. We do something, but almost by some kind of a priori structure, we should always count that our act will lead to imprevisible consequences, and so on and so on, so uh, every revolution in this sense has to be repeated, has to uh, repeat its own, uh, sorry, has to deal with its own catastrophic consequences. Now, just briefly, I will stick to my allotted time, I want briefly to provoke maybe you at at the end to uh, explain why I still stick to two of my, as Jacobin called them, Grave errors in a beautiful Stalinist term, which are my mistakes in the last year. A, my, not celebration, I knew he's a disgusting nobody, but when I say maybe in the long term, Trump with his, Donald Trump, with his horrors can lead to something positive, and my idea that there are also progressive potentials in the pandemic. I stick to this more than ever. First, Trump. Don't forget that the democratic socialist, democratic left that is now raising not only in the uh, United States, in Europe. Now the Greens are, sometimes it goes up and down, almost the strongest party in West Germany. The idea of eco-socialism is uh, going and so on and so on. I think that all this nonetheless emerged as a reaction to Trump. I think that today we are entering a new era where we will have on the one side uh, this Trumpian populism and on the opposite side not the traditional liberalism but more something like the combination, I hope, so of liberal values and uh, more... Uh, mo- and uh, a turn... turn to the left. As for pandemic, yes, I know the entire story, catastrophe for women, class struggle and so on. But nonetheless, I think pandemic for the first time in decades may make clear a general demand that we need some kind of a global health care coordination and so on and so on. And uh, this will not disappear, there will be further catastrophes, like I read now, because I have friends there, this terrifying news. You, lear- you read, I hope, two days ago, in Vancouver, in Canada, the temperatures were 49.66 degrees Celsius. Now, I agree here with Biden, this is global warming. You cannot even understand this problem as a local problem of of uh, northwest of that part of the world. Okay, I could go on here, but uh, just to, to make it more dynamic, I will just briefly reply to uh, deep, uh First, uh, economically, I agree with you, just clarifications. Uh, Neo feudalism. Economically, do you agree or not? Because this is my limitation. Till now, I followed the idea of some Italian guys that the key to this neo-feudalism in very brutal basic economic terms is what they call a return from profit to rent.
1: That the model of
0: capitalist exploitation is no longer profit. We are returning to rent now, I'm linking this to another point, which to me at least, it was presented by, Etienne you know her, Rebecca Carson, that paradoxically, against Marx's idea that the more we progress in capitalism, the more, this classical phrase, we are posited as free humans, but relations of domination are transposed onto relations between things, so that we are formally free, domination is reproduced as at the level of relations between things. But Rebecca Carson proposed this idea, and I think it rhymes, Jody, with your uh, neo-feudalism stuff. She proposed the idea that, no, with this new form of neo-feudal capitalism, no, the relations of domination are again becoming more and more direct interpersonal relations of domination. It's no longer we are free individuals, domination is out there covered up in object relations and so on and so on. Now, uh, at the end, would you agree or not? I absolutely, with what? I absolutely accept your point about uh, the importance of uh, this anthropological dimension. The way I understand it, I just wonder if you see a place for my type of reasoning here, is that not only the pandemic, but also the other crisis, which I think is looming. I wrote a short book on it. The so-called prospect of a wired brain. Direct contact between our brain our psychic life and a digital network and through this direct extra sensory, how to put it, direct mental contact with other people, so-called singularity and so on, it's an idea but we are coming very close to realizing in some primitive forms that this perspective and even the pandemic also are not just political, social problems, they raise, and I take this very seriously, they raise the problem of, are we still human? What does it mean to be human today? Like, if we will be able to directly, mentally communicate without language, what does this mean for our being human? Or, we all know how, even with the pandemic, when we were forced to lock down, isolate, and so on, some of the common protesters, Claimed that this, and this is basically a dumbbell's point also. That if we follow all the rules of the lockdown and so on, we are in some sense no longer human. So it is at this level that I see the problem, not in an essentialist level, of course, essential anthropology, but that what goes on now, socially, ecologically, economically somehow affects our very standard understanding of what does it mean to be human and I have one minute if I speak to how long uh others speak Will you uh, uh, Jacqueline you know what's my problem here I totally agree with what you said I'm just maybe it's my philosophical uh distortion you know I have as an old Hegelian a sympathy for death drive you know And I, what I would just say that death drive is also, if we read it in link with Hegel's notion of self-relating negativity and so on and so on, death drive also means I'm able to step out of the egotistic calculation of survival, profit, and so on. It's another name, almost, I would say, for another name for sovereignty. So, uh, Jacqueline, Would you agree or not, I don't want to go into philosophical details, but would you agree or not that all these destructive, violent effects of death drive emerge most forcefully precisely when death drive, instead of being openly assumed, is masked as a form of singular collective egotism? Death drive in the sense of you have an entity, a living entity, it has to be protected at at, at any price, and so on and so on. So I'm not ready to dismiss the, how should I call it, the the liberating aspect of death drive. I think death drive is an ambiguous notion. Death drive also means beyond pleasure principle, Ethics is beyond their drive. Maybe I'm going too far here. I will, as promised, stick to the timeline.
2: So thanks very much.
0: You know, a couple of friends from New Zealand told me that from their standpoint, Jacinda Ardern is perceived in a more ambiguous way. They claim that Even more than China, the situation in New Zealand, that's how they controlled pandemic was in a soft way, totally digitally state controlled and so on. And with a slight anti-feminist twist, which I don't agree. For them, they claim Jacinda Ardern is the new human feminine face of the new digital authoritarian capitalism for them. I don't agree with this. Just my point is, don't forget that new capitalism is also reinventing a new type of femininity which fits it. Second point, very briefly, neoliberalism. You know what I don't like in this term. Wherever I look this new big corporation, liberalism and so on, they all need a stronger role of the state than ever. New Neoliberalism doesn't mean the state is disappearing. Its regulative power and so on is stronger than ever. Second, what Etienne, just by uh, another point, what Etienne mentioned about how we will react to digital control, new rules and so on, but here enters what I consider absolutely a crucial point. Namely, Never forget that rules can also function by apparently being violated. This story, I remember from socialism, nobody took socialist education seriously in a high school. They said this is just blah blah blah, forget about it, be cynical, don't get engaged politically, but that's what fitted. Those in power, those in power when I was young in Yugoslavia were most horrified if you took the official ideology seriously. The last point, reason. My God, let me defend reason a little bit. You know, there are different points of reason, uh, aspects of reason. We have understanding this uh, quantitative mechanical reason, but we have also the notion of reason in the proper Hegelian sense of proper reflexivity. The basic approach of the reason in this Hegelian sense is okay. We have science, but how does science function socially? What are its implicit social presuppositions, implications, and so on? Because don't forget that today the predominant spontaneous form of ideology is simply what I even called the will not to know. Typically, attitude is, yes, let the scientists provide the vaccine, but we don't want to change our way of life. We don't want to know. So I am for, in this sense, for a rehabilitated notion of reason. Nonetheless, without reason, we are lost. While we are waiting, Jacqueline, did you see the movie, I don't like it? I think it's kind of a political class identity, Nomadland.
1: No, I haven't seen it yet, but I don't like the sound of it.
0: No, you know where it's tricky? It is apparently for those poor guys who cannot even afford a a house, just drive around and uh, look for a job. But then it goes into this typical subtly right-wing nostalgia. They are happy in their own way. That's what I read. It really
1: really put me off. So I didn't, I haven't, I've hardly been to the cinema. But I thought yes, this sounds nice I am more me. radical.
0: I'm theoretically convinced that it's not a good movie, so I will not see it. You know, one has to trust theory. <laughs> <laughs> Incidentally, oh, yeah. sorry, uh, are we beginning? I don't want to lose time. Um, yeah, we should. Should
2: we begin? Let me yeah, we've is now got. My, is my voice better now? I changed over. Now. Can
1: you hear me?
0: Okay. You're not wonderfully
1: clear Esther I noticed that earlier Is this any
0: better? Jacqueline, did, I, did you hear what I saw what I told to Esther before? Now I'm becoming no. politically correct It's in today's news Yesterday in an interview for CNN CNN Zeman, the Czech president, right wing social democrat, said that he can understand gays and lesbians, how you can be. But trans, he used these terms. They are totally disgusting. Oh and God. so on. Oh God. I mean, you see, this is what I'm afraid of. It's really we should return to Churchill Iron Curtain, but now in the other way. We should build an Iron Curtain because it's the whole level. Poland, Czech Republic, Austria, also a little bit Hungary, Slovenia. This is the Hungary for, sure. Hungary for sure. Hungary. Well, but Hungary. A- things, yeah. No, what I want to tell you is that speaking to journalists, I learned that Orban is nonetheless much more pragmatic. He makes deals with Chinese. He's very opportunistic. While, uh, beware of the Polish guys who are, and the Slovene guy, Janka, is the craziest. He's personally fanatic, totally... It's mad what he's doing. You know
1: what is really strange, and maybe we can have this conversation a bit yeah. later, but it's as if the unconscious of everything we've been discussing politically, sexually, culturally yeah. for the last two decades has now suddenly risen to the surface of politics and become an yeah. object yeah. of such venom and hatred that we've not, I mean, they they were burning effigies of Judith Butler in Brazil when she visited three years ago. It's really out of control. And Bolsonaro even said he wants to put an end in universities to gender theory. He didn't even say gender as a, con, he said gender theory. He was, he was, yeah. he was fingering her. I mean, it is but getting it very, us, very serious. But it's not just
0: Brazil. I read a week ago that Fifteen, one, five of American states are already enacting laws prohibiting critical race theory, gender theory, and so on. And openly, they say, they say that, they even say that, uh, yeah, especially this critical history, you know, the history of the United States, what really happened. They're openly saying it's not a matter of truth, but... A nation needs a unified myth, and so on. I mean, it's,
1: yeah, You said that in your talk.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. And I checked it up. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know. Don't ask me what's going okay, on. I think we I'm should being, start now. Yeah,
2: let us yeah, start. Yeah, Esther's going to start. <laughs> Hello, I hope everyone can hear me. Uh, as usual, when Boy comes, we're going uh, we sort to of start before we start, and then we have to stop him so we can start. So um, let us now start. Also, I just come um, because of the, the shortness of of the of the period we had to watch in the video. I just watched him at double speed. So imagine how I feel now. Although <laughs> it was a discernible difference, it, it was within the realms of of imaginableness. So we are delighted to open our summer school, the live part of our summer school with Professor Lavoy Dijek who is International Director of the Birkbeck Institute for Humanities, as well as holding various other roles. And our summer school is virtually unthinkable without Slaboy Zujet's presence, as he has been part of the faculty from its very inception in 2010. And Slaboy has always very generously shared his developing thoughts with us each year at the summer school, as well as in his master classes here at Birkbeck. So we've heard, from his books as they progress, and so by my calculations, we've been exposed to the developing thoughts of 20 books. Yes, yeah? 20 books over the last 10 years. I don't need to say all the titles, though they are an exercise in inventiveness around a close set of themes. Uh, so just one or two to remind you: Hegel in a Wired Brain, sets and the Failed Absolute.
1: The Continents of the Void, the philosophical bandage. Esther, we can't hear you very well. Well, I'm really surprised. Uh, People are I commenting guess. it on the chat. Perhaps you could just remove all your mics and see if that's better. Well, I hope. Nice. Uh-huh. Your sound is now off Esther.
0: It's strange because you, Jacqueline, I hear you simply perfectly. I don't know. And I can
1: hear you perfectly, but Esther I can't hear very well. Okay, Esther, you're muted now. Apologies to everybody for these what we like to think a little technical teething problems at the beginning of the week. I'm sure we'll get there. Esther, can you unmute yourself?
2: Yes. Yeah, okay. Mic. Is that any better? Is that better? Marginally
0: better. Marginally better, me.
2: wrong with my setup? Do you have to um, use a mic? You possibly not. Um... How does, How does this sound? Better, a little bit. I think that's better.
1: Okay. No, that's echoing. Okay, I think, yeah, let's see what people say. People are saying it's much better. Is that
0: much better? You get an applause. Better. you're getting an applause like better, <laughs> much better, like Stalin at the end of a speech. You should be proud,
2: yeah. I am so proud. About that, yes. should I? Okay, I I I won't start again, but I shall I shall pick up where I left off. So I was reminding you of um, the titles: Hegel in a Word, Brain, Sex and the Failed Absolute, Incontinence of the Void, Absolute Recall Coil, the most sub, um, uh, towards a new foundation of dialectical materialism, the most sublime, Hysteric Hegel with Lacan, less than nothing living in end times a sense of end times which I think was the first book that was written um, during uh, Slavoj's first association with us um, maybe set a tenor that has clearly not disappeared we're in the extended end times and Slavoj has spent the last 10-11 years modulating um, how that uh occurs and rendering for us the different and unpredictable ways in which our world, its politics, its culture has developed. Now, two weeks ago, the US left-wing magazine Jacobin did a profile of Slavoj Žižek. Indeed, it was titled In Defense of Slavoj Žižek, because the point from which one steps out would need to already be apparently defensive. And their short profile gives a balance sheet, totting up his, quote, truly bad positions over the years and his important provocations, noting, and I quote, Fuzek remains an important theorist for the left for two reasons. First, his reinterpretation of dialectical materialism has resuscitated the leftist philosophy in the face of intellectual assaults, Second, he has written creative, insightful studies of ideology in our postmodern neoliberal era. Taken together, these contributions constitute a formidable legacy that ensure Zizek, whatever his flaws, will remain a touchstone for a long time. So, from Jacobin, a mealy-mouthed endorsement from the left, but an endorsement nonetheless, which admittedly does conclude if the mission of critical theory is to analyse and critique the ailments of its time, then Žižek is one of our finest di- diagnosticians. In any case, then Žižek is a touchstone and an obsession in some quarters. He's really suffused our thinking about ideology as a complex, inconsistent, difficult terrain with a lot of disavowal in it and I-know-but structures. And what keeps his thinking ever compelling is that he trails and tracks events and phenomena in contemporary culture and political movements and he points up the ridiculous, humorous, dissociative and often peculiar illogics that underpin them. And is merciless, in exposing other logics and pitfalls of contemporary ideology, not without, frequently, controversy. So we've already seen how this is part of the lecture he's provided for us for our summer school. And so I want to now turn over to Slavoj and welcome him. um, Thank you very much. Describe the structure. So we're going to have a conversation between ourselves to 15 or 20 minutes. We'll see where it goes. And then we were then open to contributions and uh, comments. You can use the um, chat. Uh, if you want to write it down, we may open the mics. We'll just see. We, we've got uh, our great moderators keeping an eye on the chat box and what's going on there. So we do hope to to bring as many of you in as is possible, but also remember tomorrow after Slavoy's live mini lecture, there will also be opportunities for discussion and comment and uh, engagement. So thank you for the lecture. Um, I thought it was really interesting how you began with the universal you, you began uh with this this notion of us as universal beings and this was part of your discussion of of nature and those sort of anthropogenic thoughts that want to decenter the human and you, you talk there about a kind of universality um of beings and, and the, the particular role that we hold within mitigating climate change and so on and you ended with a an universality and you, you were very insistent on holding on to universal truth and that came after your discussion of critical race theory and the the, the the ways in which um yeah notions are mobilized and it doesn't matter if they're true or not for you know your, your own government or for trump Trumpian style politics and, and you're holding on to the actuality, the truth that critical race theory points to, for example. So yeah, I wondered if you would say something about that that category of of the universal, I suppose. Or, yeah, how is there a connection, I suppose, between the universalism at, at the start of the talk in terms of us as a universal being and the universalism of truth that we hold on to at the end.
0: Uh, Thanks very much. Just one remark about that Jacobin article. I love the expression they use, grave errors. uh, Do you know that? I know, if I know something, I know Stalinism, that this is the classical Stalinist designation of somebody who commits errors disagrees with the party, but basically is still given a chance of being one of us. know Like, uh, for example, no, Khrushchev went further. But later when Khrushchev was deposed, it was said that he committed some grave errors and so on and so on. So that, okay, I proudly assume that, that. I don't want to lose time. I will just go directly to your point. I'm basically just repeating the old central claim, I think, of Marx himself, uh, Frankfurt School, and all serious, philosophically reflected Marxists. My point is that, and I think if we abandon this, all Marxism, even Marxist legacy disintegrates, that universalism and taking aside, being partial, are not opposed. On the contrary, for example, the a couple of examples to make this clear. Today, I already use this, today in the United States, to be really against racism means black lives matter. Although from an abstract liberal point, you could say, oh, but don't all lives matter. No. Ra- state violence against racism, sorry, against the blacks, is the hidden model, the paradigm of racism today. So you cannot just say, okay, let's look also to the other side and so on. No. There is always a particular case. In Germany in the 30s, it was anti Semitism. Today in Israel, it's how you treat. Palestinians on the West Bank, and so on, and so on, this is, which is the exemplary case of the universality. So I think this is the point of, uh, of this idea how to save universalism today. Definitely not in this sense of adopting. Uh, universal objective view, there are partial views and so on. No. Truth in itself is available only through an interested view. You must be engaged to have access on a truth. Truth is not a universal category. This is why I would go even a step further and claim that this falsely objective view let's look at all sides they are all making mistakes and so on this secret presupposition but we have the neutral view Uh, we are above the conflicts this is perhaps the greatest most violent partiality in the sense of class exploitation and so on and so on and the way I apply this is also against a certain type of identity politics. I think that's what I reproach them, that uh, the vision I see in them is that, again, there are different identities, each identity should be allowed to articulate itself, and then what we get is some kind of a neutral, liberal space where... (laughs) identities can coexist. No, I think that there are different identities and the truly radical, universal, as it were, identity is the identity which is inherently antagonistic, which cannot articulate itself. I will stop soon, but let me give you an example. I hope you will like it. Uh, The movie which got an Oscar, and some progressives even celebrated it, Nomadland, yes, it's good, these nomadic proletarians who even cannot afford a home and so on, that it focuses on them, but uh, it's, for me, a kind of uh, identity politics transferred onto class struggle. The the, the feeling you get from the movie is nonetheless that, look, even these poor people who cannot even uh, uh, afford a permanent home have their own cultural identity, their own way of life. They know how to enjoy a little bit that life uh, offers them, and so on and so on. I think this is the most dangerous position. I like to oppose to this identity, which I call classism, enjoy your class identity. What I heard when in New Delhi I visited the lowest of the lowest caste, those who who, uh, uh, clean dry toilets, and I asked them, what's your basic program, and they gave me a wonderful definition. We don't want to be what we are. That's our program, you know. So, again, uh, again, uh, never forget that Identity politics, in this bad sense, to each, its, her, their, his own identity, always presupposes a hidden universality. And, and uh, universality in the sense of who defines the space of coexistence of these identities. And that's why I claim that many white liberals who support black or... Uh, or Native American, whatever, identity, even if they appear masochistic ideologically, in the sense of, no, we don't have the same right to our own identity, but secretly they reserve for themselves their own universal position. They're really taking care, judging others, are you faithful to your identity, and so on and so on. And so for me, I, of course, admit it, we are all culturally overdetermined and so on. But as an old Hegelian, I claim that the conflicts that we fight are not conflicts of identities within some universal space. No, they are conflicts of different universalities. Each particular identity has its own view of of universality. In a new brief book of political texts I published, I refer to now deceased famous East German writer, uh, Christa Wolf, who wrote a book, Der geteilte Himmel, divided heaven. So we are not all under the same heaven. Every particular position has its own vision of universal heaven, as it were. And again, This is the problem. Our problem today is not particular identities. It's universality. It's not enough to say all sexual positions should be tolerated. The problem is from which position does sexuality as such appears to us? What does global capitalism mean? We live more than ever in a global era. And getting close, that should be enough for now. Sorry. Hello, something wrong uh now we can hear you Flower. Uh, you can hear me, yes, yes, I can hear you too, but we
1: can't hear esther yeah, Where is esther gone
2: esther esther is muted esther you're muted
1: esther's muted and invisible uh, can you uh-huh can you hear me now yes 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 okay brilliant sorry about before
3: yeah i managed to find some button that that helped so yeah what you were saying about not from what position i suppose this is something that intrigues me in your talk you come up with this notion of the ideological unconscious and i just wanted to understand (laughs) like unconscious (coughs) to who you know who is un- unconscious to us, or socially unconscious, or you know, where is this? Um, or things like the, the the prohibitions and the regulations, where are they exerted from? Because if they're not, they're not manifest um, on the surface. These things are not necessarily written out and and applied but it, it seems to me like the notion of the ideological unconscious they sort of emanate from somewhere else that's always very imprecise and you know i mean in in a classic marxist kind of point of view that you know one we might talk about economic imperatives or so on but where 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 does it emanate from where is the i suppose the center of power or the Or or is there one or, you know, uh, unconscious for and to what and who?
0: Very good question. And I admit it. I don't even go very deep into this in my talk. What I just wanted to emphasize is this, which always fascinated me, as you, Esther, already hinted at, how every ideological edifice, has, and I don't, uh, some unconscious premises, and I I want to avoid now this big topic who's unconscious, Social, of course not in some Jungian sense, individual, what I would say, unconscious of a discursive structure, in the simple sense that explicitly ideo- ideology has a set of premises, but to be engage part of this ideology. There are other rules, premises which, for structural reasons, cannot be explicitly cannot be explicitly stated. The example I give I know it's tasteless, very risky. I repeat an old example of mine, you remember of that uh, guy, the Supreme Mufti in Australia, when he blamed women who are not properly dressed that they provoked if they men if they were raped and i simply ask the question but isn't the presupposition of this argumentation blaming the women that women are are uh, are just stupid we cannot restrain ourselves Women are implicitly treated there paradoxically as the only, the only, the only properly ethical, a, ethical agents. They should. Or there are other examples. For example, my favorite example with uh, Stalinism. Of course, it wasn't. I used this example already at Berwick many times. I know. Of course, under Stalinism, you were not allowed to criticize Stalin. But believe me. If you pronounced publicly this prohibition, you would be arrested even faster. So, uh, this structure interests me. How, again, and uh, different, different versions, how something is prohibited, but ultimately, and I admit, even people with whom I was engaged in polemics pointed out this nicely, like Jacques Derrida, how at the most radical level, prohibitions themselves are prohibited in the sense that they are operative on condition that you don't announce them publicly. And now, returning to what many times uh, Jacqueline pointed out, I think that this is the classical ideological structure. And I think that today, with what I call obscene masters, new obscene rules, something is changing here that even these obscene prohibitions can be publicly announced but on the other hand I want to emphasize this uh, I'm not saying that a person like Trump is without prohibitions, no, he is cheating precisely when he goes openly into obscenity and so on and so on, he knows very well what he shouldn't talk about, and so on and so on. Trump is, for me, in this sense, a pervert, and I always remember what Freud said, that nowhere is the unconscious more out of reach, more oppressed than with perverts. I find this very important because often even Freud once used At some other place, these very bad, unfortunate formulations that what hysterics just talk about dream, perverts do it. No, it's too simplified. For me, I think, I hope I'm here a little bit of a feminist. Insofar as hysteria is more feminist, it's a risky claim, and perversion more masculine. I think that hysteria is much more subversive than perversion. Perversion is really a position of absolute knowledge. A pervert doesn't ask questions. A pervert knows. So again, these structures, which are today more operative than ever, I think, always fascinated me. How? Something is prohibited, but you are solicited discreetly to violate it. Or, even more disgusting, something you are... Solicited or told, you have a free choice here, but firstly put, it: you are given a free choice only on condition that you don't use this free choice, or rather on condition that you make the right choice. And what I'm trying to say is that this is not a secondary uh, alienated, whatever uh, uh, mystification, or of ideo- this characterizes ideology as such. Every ideological space is antagonistic, cut, in this sense. And my further point, uh, I think I went just for a couple of minutes in my talk. That's why I love the conclusion I make. That's my favorite part of my talk. I think I do speak briefly about that Indian classic book, The Loss of Manu. No? Where? Yeah. Here you can see what I will call tomorrow the queerness of ideology. Ideology really doesn't want you to fully obey its commandments, but to violate them in a certain way so that then ideology at its most basic is to regulate your violations and to use your violations as the very mode to make you feel guilty and then to allow you to be integrated into ideology and so on and so on. The most, for a Catholic, at least Christian, the most horrible thing is simply not to break the laws. And I think we find this already. I know there are more refined readings, but I'm always shocked. We find this already. In paradise, at the beginning of the Bible, why did God put that stupid apple in the middle of the paradise garden where everybody could see it and so on and so on? It's absolutely clear that God played there a kind of a super-ego perverted game, you know. Those theologists who claimed Felix Pulpa, happy fall, were right. So uh, this, is, this is what, this is what uh, fascinates me here, but again, the conclusion I want to avoid, and even some leftists arrive at this conclusion, I want to avoid it, is the conclusion that, like Pierre Legendre, the French conservative Lacanian, I violently disagree with him, is that since today uh, prohibitions are getting weaker, paternal authority, blah blah, so we get these new obscenities and so on, and she sees the only way to
1: re establish some kind of normality. I reject
0: this notion with reassertion of the paternal authority. I absolutely reject this conclusion because. If you try to do it, I think, you end up as, in that sense of the term, some postmodern relativist. Like, we need authority, but uh, we know it's not true, but let's play the game. It's a cynical position. Unfortunately, Jacqueline Miller also sustains it. Authority is always a fake. but what can we do? Let's do it. But on the other hand, I complicate things here. I read a passage which I like, in spite of my critical attitude, of Hannah Arendt, where, I don't know if I already quoted it somewhere, that's big news to you, a passage, a quote that I didn't already use. Namely, Hannah Arendt says that although as a father or mother, family authority, you know that you are delivering your children into a world which you don't control, that you don't have the proper authority. But Hannah Arendt says, but nonetheless, the greatest lie here is to tell your children, listen, my authority is not grounded. I cannot be of any help to you. Just I'm delivering you to your freedom. That's also a lie. You cannot escape in this simple way. Like apparent, no? It's a much more, I would say, heroic position. How to exert authority without bluffing, without saying I am qualified to express this authority, and so on, and so on. So, again, the question of authority, I think, is uh, crucial today. But I'm again getting close. Please, go on. I don't want to talk too much because I expected some attacks on me when I see many Latino-American colleagues joining us. I know that many people are now attacking me there as Eurocentrist because I published some kind of European manifesto in Le Monde. And, okay, please, Esther. Um
3: Okay, I'll just have one more question because there, there's yeah. a lot coming in on the chat. But, um, yeah, I, w- I wanted to pick you up on one thing in the lecture which um you know from uh which might be one of these uh grave errors or flaws i don't know but it seemed to me you, you use these examples at a certain point when you were talking about um i suppose a, a kind of um well repressive tolerance or or uh, mm-hmm. it, it, uh around the notion you were talking about la la land and how the film had been attacked for not representing um, gay people, gay. even though gay people are you know part exactly. of the reality of the l a uh, of, of hollywood and and then you you sort of seem to set that together with another example from publishing around um, the idea of readers and or panels discussion panels where one has to you know, put, pull in people from all the different identities—women, gay people, trans, black, and so on—and then you you made this comment, which we 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 can't just let slip by. Whereby, rather than saying yeah. this is a, okay, yeah. rather than saying this is a denial of the reality of publishing or the intellectual world, you say we must ask the question: why there are not enough good people coming from those different groups, which seems to me to be, firstly, a, a different structure. One's talking about a lack of reflection of the real. The other is uh, maybe starting to think about material conditions in intellectual world, but at the same time is also not true. <laughs> um, so I just, I, I, yeah, I wondered if you would say something about about that about the the parallel you made there or yeah about that that
0: it comment here, yeah okay i refrain. maybe you are even you esther going too deep there because my the critical point that i used there was repeatedly told to me by women who told me i was invited to a volume and then when i sent the text I got this subtle male chauvinist message. A woman, uh, uh, of course I will not name her, claimed that uh, she was aware that it's not a very good text, and she asked the editor, like, could I rework it? And the editor basically, in a little bit more twisted way, but nonetheless, replied, you know, it doesn't really matter, we just need you for the quota, <laughs> So uh, I think that I'm not against this. I'm, and happily to say, I even don't have to do it. Like, it happened again. This was my neglect. Like, my big obsession. Hegelian women, no? It's not only your Jacqueline Gillian Rose. It's a series which is now supplemented by two other names, Rocio Zambrana and Angelica Nucci, I think. So, like, the pro- with Hegelian studies today, you have to keep, if you want the balance, you have to keep male quota, and so on. You know, what I, what distracts me is also this, that isn't it that this quota system doesn't solve the problem, but creates new tensions. So I'm not against using it, but the real problems are what you mentioned uh, Esther, material conditions, then of course, this is for me a totally uh, legitimate necessary question is there something in the very structure of this uh, (coughs) Hegelian studies, but not there and so on today, which in a much more refined way privileges uh, men and so on, material conditions, how should philosophy itself be either abandoned or restructured. But, you know, we shouldn't, what I don't like is this idea, there are real inequalities, then let's just establish quotas and somehow no, no necessity to go further. That's, that's, my, that's my problem. Because, again, Hegel studies, and if there is a philosopher who is difficult, it's Hegel. Hegel studies demonstrate how, if the space is properly opened to women, you get explosive, incredible results. For example, Rocio Zambrana's book on Hegel, imagination, and so on, it's a wonderful critique of this entire tradition. On the one hand, the rough, Marxist critique of Hegel. On the other hand, the best critique that I know of, how should I call them today's liberal Hegelians? You know, uh, uh, re, uh, re, uh, uh, recognition, um, uh, and so on, and so on. And now I want to address both of you, Esther and Jacqueline, Uh, When you mentioned Jacqueline like uh, she was, uh, her effigy was burned of uh, uh, Judith, of course this was horrible, but now I found a text by Judith which for me goes a little bit too far in this direction of uh, uh, recognition liberal topic asked, it was a propos Hegel's anniversary, just a short three four pages text, she was asked uh, what is alive of Hegel today? There is a question. And her answer is basically that Hegel's lesson is that every position of domination, exclusion, and so on is a dead alley, and that to have a livable society, we need kind of a mutual recognition, state equality and so on and so on. I here respectfully disagree. I think the uh, The lesson of Hegel is exactly the opposite one. Yes, we need equality, but the only way to equality is through this violence, unilateral misrecognition, and so on and so on. With Hegel, you don't even have a happy ending at the end. I think, uh, I, I, again, the main danger I'm generating today for me in Hegel's studies is this liberal reading of Hegel as a as a thinker of uh, mutual recognition and so on and so on, no, Hegel is a much more chemist, if you want, uh, philosopher. That's uh, the way I read Hegel. Is that Hegel is not this uh, traditional uh, cunning of reason guy whenever things are go bad. He acts quickly, yeah, but at the end, even the greatest time serves some positive purpose, and so on and so on. No, Hegel's point, I claim, is almost the contrary one. Whenever we think we have a solution, things will for sure turn bad. That's why I think Hegel would have been, in a slightly perverse way, glad to see 19th century after his death. Look, we had 50 years only in Europe. Elsewhere in the world, it was a nightmare, colonial nightmare. But in Europe, relative peace, prosperity, till World War One, of course. And then, how World War One, the true tragedy exploded. And remember that World War One, you cannot blame fascists, uh, communists, whatever. It was pure explosion of capitalism. Precisely of the capitalism which arrived so much in the second car of ninety century. And it was the, the same moment in 1990. The Fukuyama hope and the history know we are where we are now. Here Hegel is useful today, I think. I'm going too much time. I'm sorry.
3: So Okay, we we have a lot of questions coming in, but I think maybe Jacqueline, you wanted to to come in? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, because Jacqueline is uh, giving me now, sorry Jacqueline, I mean this in a benevolently ironic way. I see in Jacqueline's image what I call when my wife is mad at me, the, the Greta Thunberg look, you know. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: Thank you, you, Slavoj, for the identification with Greater Thunberg. Um, I just wanted to say a couple of practical things. I've been reading the chat questions that have come in, and I want to say to all of you that they are being registered the questions are fabulous, by the way, but we do have another full live session with Slavoj tomorrow. So if we don't get to many of the questions today, we can carry them over and we will begin with them tomorrow. Yeah, totally agree. will yeah. be happy with that after Slavoj done his presentation. So there will be time. Uh, Sergio, a key organizer of this whole process, is recommending Slavoj, although I think you're constitutionally incapable of this that you restrict your answers to two or three minutes so that enough people get to talk to you. Um, So that's a plea. Okay, I will just make a brief intervention of a kind that those of you who are regulars at the Summit School will have heard me make before. I welcome your description of hysteria as the subversive alternative to perversion. I welcomed in your talk the welcoming of Catherine Angel and what I thought was a profound point that you made about how the manipulation of power in sexual violence by men against women includes the appropriation of the power to know the mind of the woman who is the victim of the attack. And I think that is an important insight. And I also was pleased to hear you reject the Pierre Legendre-Jacques Miller position who asked for a semi-ironic reassertion of paternal authority and how that restoration would be unhelpful, to say the least. At the same time, I have a recurrent problem, which you won't be surprised to hear, Slavoj, about the way the figure of the feminine punctuates your speech and your thinking. So the example of the Jewish marriage broker, the example of the gang rape, um, leaves me with a question about what images we want to be promoting and circulating within our own discourse. And I know you present them in order to critique them, but there's something about the way they appear, which still leaves me with a concern and a discomfort, which was crystallized for me this time with the point that Esther's already made as if it was true that there were not enough good women or black writers, as if it was true, and we therefore need to see why that is the case, instead of seeing it as systematic institutional misogyny and racism, which makes the extraordinary output of women and black writers mostly, but less so now as a result of Black Lives Matter, invisible. So you won't be surprised to hear any of this, Slavoj, but I always feel I have a responsibility towards our wider constituency to articulate these concerns. Um, and I'm happy, I mean, you may want to respond or we could move on to the questions now.
0: No, I, I will be this time really uh, very, really very brief. First, I agree with you fully, Jacqueline. My God, yes, it's many ways of not only institutional, but unwritten rules in institutions, like often. You know, I think that anti feminism today, its most dangerous form are. I think with these false liberals who officially obey the rules, it's almost easy to fight with open anti-feminist white supremacists and so on and so on. What you said <coughs> about uh Uh, uh, many excellent women writers and so on. I agree with you, for example uh, 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 for example uh, uh, my God, now you will accuse me of Freudian sleep, that oppressed women who wrote Beloved? Uh, Tony Morrison Morrison. (laughs) okay, sorry, but uh, this is for me the founding text of what I maybe in an essentialist way but nonetheless, what I'm tempted to call feminine subjectivity today, you know, because you cannot what she does, the heroine you cannot simply transpose it onto men, no this is a specific feminine situation and at the same time no patronizing there uh, it meets the highest criteria of subjectivity in German idealism and so on and so on I just uh, think that, as you pointed out Uh, yes there are many writers, movie makers and so on and so on but sooner or later don't you think Jacqueline we okay encounter a certain deadlock yes I agree there are many excellent black uh, uh, feminine writers and so on and so on but uh, uh, I don't think it's just the institutional Oppression of them. I think that something, maybe that would be my conclusion, something has to be changed in the very structure, not just institutionally, but even theoretically of what is philosophy today and not in this easy way, you know, like men are too much into firm firm structures, women, fluidity and so on. I distrust this abstract uh, oppositions. But I think the problem is deeper here, but to conclude really when we talk about hysteria and so on, what, why, why, the reason I like to emphasize hysteria is that uh, of, even with many feminists today, you find this idea of some, although they don't say, some substantial feminine identity, then oppressed, distorted, by and so on, and so on. No, I think women are fundamentally... To be a woman is much more than to be a man a subjective position, a position of subjectivity, which precisely means that it's a position in itself under antagonistic and so on, that it's not that we simply have some feminine substantial identity uh, crushed or whatever by, by, uh, by, uh, by, uh, by patriarchy and so on. Sorry, but let's go on. yes, uh, please, let's go what Jacqueline you said, let's go in detail into all this stuff tomorrow with all the other with all the other questions. And you know Jacqueline, it's a funny, remark, don't take it as a thing, but you know, when I mentioned Catherine Angel, I wasn't sure is she allowed in our circle or is she excluded? Like, I'm glad to hear that I didn't make a theoretical mistake there that there are no conflicts there. (laughs) That To repeat my joke, there is no unwritten rule that you shouldn't mention her too much, you know. So I was very glad, because, because again, what I like her is that she shows so clearly the limitation of this simplistic view, yes means yes, and so on, but not in this male chauvinist way, oh, women are ambiguous, you never mention but showing how even in this way, explicit rules, you as a woman should know what you want, and so on and so on, that even here a much more subtle but maybe brutal violence can reproduce itself. This is very important to say today. Who is now? Where is
3: Esther? Disappear? Yeah, I'm back, uh, and I'm realizing that time is uh, very much uh, slipping away. You we want? <laughs> well, we we have to have a break, and then we will have Jody Dean this afternoon. But happily, oh, sure. we Hello do we do have. Um, at least an hour and a half tomorrow, but I'm going to throw the first question here, and to everyone who's written very extensive questions, we we will either uh, present them tomorrow, or, I know Slavoj is often very generous, and he's happy to sort of receive them, and you know, maybe respond in another way, um, while he's sunning himself on his Adriatic island. Let Shall me...
0: Are long. I propose a compromise. Send me the full text of the questions so mm-hmm. that tomorrow you present just a shortened version. So, as okay. you say in that's English, you, yeah. we can have a cake and eat it, or how do you say this? i never in <laughs> Yeah,
3: no, that, that's a really good idea. So, we will communicate to them, uh, them to Slavoj after this session. Let me just start with the first one from, from Jean Mathy, though, who's saying, If the real is spectral and virtual, how is it distinguished from the imaginary and the symbolic? Does this change the real of death and the real of the lack of rapport in the sexual relation or the real of the division in the subject? What is at stake in the spectrality of the real in your argument? So in two Uh, minutes...
0: (laughs) uh, No, this is, I think, uh, high even philosophical speculation. I think that uh, the real, even in the sense of ultimate, traumatic point and so on, is in some sense always virtual. Virtual in the sense that it functions as a threat and so on, but it cannot ever be actualized. Take the example that I use, I think, uh, nuclear weapons, you know. they function as a threat only insofar as they remain virtual. The moment you actualize it, uh, everything is over, and so on and so on. So from here, now I will make, not to take too much time, another twist which maybe will surprise you. We should uh, discard a certain Lacanian theory, which kind of a disparages or rejects imaginaries, just images, nothing, uh, symbolic, symbolic games, and real is the only authentic thing. No, real can also be a fake. Every ideology implicitly resuscitates its own version of the real, which is a fake. You know, real as spectral can also be a fundamental ideological fantasy. So, in some sense, What we should do in psychoanalysis is not only to get rid of uh, these symbolic, imaginary, superficial structures and look at the real. No, we should also bring out the virtual spectral status of the real. This is my answer also to those who reproach me that I'm always fascinated on the real as the real thing. No, The real is, for me, always an immanent impossibility of the symbolic. It's every symbolic structure is built upon a certain fundamental standing. Look, let's take Marxism. Class struggle is, for me, real. What does this mean? This means precisely that in reality you never get two classes you get always at least three middle classes, complex and so on and so on, but the spectral real is class difference, or I make, like to make the same point about sexual difference, it's real, which means exactly that you cannot symbolize it fully, which means exactly that, uh, that in reality you have, you never had just women and men, you have necessarily other positions which are even closer to the traumatic core of sexual difference. My idea is that if you want to grab the antagonism which defines sexuality, you find it in a much poorer way in transgender subjects than in those who are purely men, purely women, and so on, and so on. But maybe we leave this for tomorrow. Okay, with pleasure I go into this.
3: Let me um give a second question um because it relates directly to the lecture, and this from you know this, sorry,
0: an anti-feminist remark I cannot ever restrain. You see, this is how so women are evil. You said one question, now it's another. You give them a <laughs> finger, they take a hand. I'm sorry, I cannot resist. That's my nature. Yeah, yeah, that okay. is Please your nature, <laughs> yes.
3: Uh, Radoslav Stupak says, I'm not sure I understand your point about object-oriented ontology, the link to obscenity and ideology. Is obscenity the false reality, the supposedly real object? What does it then destroy in relation to ideology? Why should we fight it besides the fact that it's homophobic, transphobic, re- reactionary, etc.? Should we then defend current ideology instead of destroying it, stepping outside, creating a better one? Or is it better to keep the obscene repressed? Why? How does that relate to... Uh, This is
0: the second part of the question. I agree. It's even a very good point. Uh, uh, I hear you have in clear the difference between... I will not uh, lose my thread. Between classical dialectic of Enlightenment, critical theory, and Habermas. What we should never forget is that, for example, Adorno in authoritarian personality, when he discloses the basic structure of auto- authoritarian personality, of course, it's as opposed to liberal personality. But Adorno is not saying that this means we should get rid of authoritarian personality and just assert No, for Adorno, if I put it in some simplified way, authoritarian personality is the return of the repressed of the liberal personality. While the way I read Habermas his thesis on modernity as an uh, 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 in, uh, unfinished project, he believes that we just need more pure liberalism, actual liberalism, or whatever. So I would say that, uh, I would say that, to reply to this question, that we Ah, uh, Now I will give you clearly the link between all this and what I said about... Uh, appearances, object-oriented ontology. My slightly complex thought, but I will try to be as brief as possible. Uh, when an ideology describes a certain universe, by ideology I don't mean theoretical, edifice, even our daily life ideologies, you, they always bring with them, ideologies, an idea of what is behind the veil the hidden real, and so on. And that's why I used to indicate this, the famous 20 times repeated by me, example of two Greek painters, Zeuxis, Parasios. Uh, appearance is never, that's the big lesson of Hegel, appearance is not just what appears, appearance always creates a supposed in itself, what is behind the appearance. It and so the true fight against ideology is not just destroy the appearance, but at the same time undermine this false idea of in itself behind the appearance. And here I reproach object oriented ontologies that, that blur this distinction between appearance and reality in itself as immanent to ideology. And on the other hand, to put it very naively, obviously there are some things outside, but the way they really are, because the big motive of Graham, Harman and so on is that we cannot ever grasp directly things. There is always a part of the thing hidden and so on and so on. Okay, but I'm saying, what is hidden? What we presuppose as being hidden, is also constructed by the surface. So, my idea is that to really get rid of the obscene, what is obscenely hidden, you should change the surface. Don't ever underestimate the surface.
3: Thank you. Um, We are, we're out of time, I think, for, today so what we will do then is gather up the questions that have come in so far and send them to Slavoj to to think about Uh and they might sort of help to augment his his talk tomorrow or certainly augment the discussion although I'm sure we will get more questions too um and yes so I also wanted to say we take a break now and we come back at three o'clock, when we'll watch Jodie Dean's pre-recorded lecture. If we haven't figured out how to run that through the main room, then please watch it through the Moodle shell. Um, So I invite you all to go and get some coffee or tea. Um, We also have a common room, and the link, I think, is going to be posted in the chat where you might want to jump in and meet each other or chat or just keep an eye on each other um presenters may or may not also drop in so please um do that but otherwise if you also just need some headspace after um this whirl of thought and discussion from Slavoj please do that too um so Slavoj thank you so much for that we'll be back with you one o'clock your time 12 o'clock our time or 12 o'clock london time tomorrow um yeah Thank you. I would like you to be
0: the British racist and say one o'clock your time and noon the real time, you know, the actual yeah, real exactly. time. Noon, <laughs> yeah, exactly.
3: Noon, But isn't the real time the universal time code, which is yeah, something like 11 in, o'clock in now, an 11 anyway? Time,
0: you, United Kingdom, have a privileged access to universality. <laughs>
3: and to time itself, yes, indeed.
0: Yeah.
3: Hmm. yeah. Okay. You
0: know, I, the, 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 sorry, yes, okay.
3: Yeah, what's that?
0: No, no, what I wanted to tell is that now I wrote a brief text on Assange, because he will celebrate in a couple of days, you must know this, 50th birthday, no? And mm-hmm. you know that old Rolling Stones hit, uh, 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 time is on my side, you know?
2: Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, in the case of
0: Assange, time is not on his. side. <laughs> it's very, 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 very sad what is happening there. Don't you think that the the authorities simply count on the fact that uh, somehow people will will get tired of this, you know?
3: Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's
0: as simple as that, you know? Yeah, yeah. We are losing time. Tomorrow we have enough time. Okay.
3: Yes, good. Thank you. Enjoy your island.
0: And uh, my bad idea, sometimes I see you, sometimes I see jetting, sometimes I suspect that You are the same person, just, you know, disappearing here, quickly changing your hair and so on. (laughs) Thanks. Bye-bye.
3: All
2: right. See you. Bye-bye.